We were detained for three, for like two and a half days, I would say. It was hard to tell what day was what. Um, it was just a lot of hours. Um, it was pretty horrifying. The I was 16, <laughs> also. Um, oh, it's so hard to remember. Welcome to Never Forget Radio, where, from the comfort of your own home or your device, and from the safety of the future, we can revisit the memory of 9-11 of George W. Bush and of all the years associated with both since. It's been over a decade of disappointment, failure, and disaster. I'm no expert, but I'll be your host as we explore our recent past and try to reclaim it. Let's roll. Welcome to part two of an interview in oral history with activist and friend of Never Forget Radio, Emily Friedman. On her experience as a 16-year-old protesting the 2004 Republican National Convention in Manhattan, as a member of the group called the Radical Cheerleaders. Again, you can find more of her writings at femaletroubles.tumblr, where her tagline is culture, feminism, feelings, all the things you want. We're going to resume right away here with Emily's story, and as she and her fellow members of the Radical Cheerleaders have been penned in by the cops on 16th Street, just east of Union Square, on Tuesday, August 31st, 2004, nine years ago. So, we, okay, once we got off the city bus to some dark place that we had never seen and everyone was like, where are we? What the hell is going on? Um, we were taken to, like, a makeshift desk where it was, it sort of looked like airport security. Like you put in all of your belongings. So like my phone, you know, I had my phone and like $20 in my bra. Like, I think that's all I had with me. Um, and my pom poms, (laughs) I did have to give them my pom poms. Uh, and so I gave them that and then they did like a aggressive pat down and, I was like, I'm 16, I need to call my parents. And they were like, you will. And then they put me in a holding cell. And it was basically this huge, industrial, empty lot that had pens in it. It was like chicken wire pens. And there was a huge one and like a bunch of little ones. (laughs) And we weren't, at that point, we weren't arrested. We weren't booked. We were just detained Uh, We weren't booked until days later. So I was initially put into this big holding cell, probably 500 people. Um, Old people were there. (laughs) That was pretty frightening for a lot of people. Um, Someone had snuck in their cell phone and we had called ACLU who got us on the radio and we were passing around the phone doing interviews saying our name and our age and we didn't know where we were and we were being held by the police and the police came in and grabbed the phone and stepped on it and screamed at us and we weren't fed for days um we they would like Well, so in the first holding pen, I think I'd probably, I don't even know how long, probably 15 to 20 hours I was in that cell with, like, 
or within that pen with that many people. Um, people were shitting on the floor. I had my period, so I was bleeding all over myself, and they wouldn't give me a tampon or any... They wouldn't let me go to a bathroom. There were no bathrooms. Um, so there was, like, a pee corner and a shit corner and no food. And then they separated us into smaller cells and these cells and there were like no benches or anything it was just the ground that was covered in dust and I was having an allergic reaction to it as was most people because uh it was found out later that there was asbestos and everyone was breaking out and so I was basically like sweaty and bloody and had a lot of rashes all over me and was being I wasn't fed and we'd oh and we were handcuffed the whole time uh so we couldn't even go to sleep or sit down because it was really hard to get back up uh yeah behind our backs we were handcuffed uh and then eventually what felt I mean I don't think we slept that whole time I didn't um and me and Sarah were definitely, we were in the same, in, later we were in the same holding cell, but that woman who we had met earlier was still there and we were like trying to take care of her a little bit <clears throat> and she was pretty hysterical, um, as one would be. So, and this woman, this was her first time visiting America she was from India. She was visiting her son. She was going from a bookstore on Irving Place to Union Square to meet him for dinner and was picked up on this street and was in her 60s. And I, yeah, I mean, it was, I think she's part of the lawsuit. I think she might be diabetic. So it was, there was also people with like serious problems that they needed medical attention for. And we were denied medical attention. Um, when we finally got into central bookings, we saw a doctor and everyone gave complaints and they checked off nothing on all of the sheets, which I know for a fact because everyone in my lawsuit had the same react had the same experience. Um, so yeah, they were being denied. Oh God, what the some of the scariest stuff that I saw um, when we were taken to central bookings, there was someone who was a person in front of me on the bus whose hands were turning black because she had been handcuffed and they wouldn't loosen it. And they, it was, she was hysterically crying and they just kept telling her to shut up and cursing at her. And everyone on the bus was screaming and they were like, it was just a screaming match the entire time. And her arm, her like, it was, it was horrifying. Like, her her hands were black. Um, and I think she needed surgery after because, I mean, I she, all of her circulation was cut off for about two days. So her, she's in my lawsuit as well. One of her hands doesn't move, and the other one had to get surgery to have it move seeing her and being unable to help her and no one listening and people screaming at us. It was just really, really horrible. <laughs> also, my 
friend who, Sarah, was on antidepressant meds and uh, was bipolar. And so she was also denied her meds the entire time, uh, which made her sort of even more, uh, you know, it's a really traumatic situation. It made her more traumatized, basically. Um, And so she was having a really, really hard time. Um, and that was really hard to watch. And she had her meds, like, on her at the time. And so they had it in the, in the scent, and they wouldn't give it to her. And they wouldn't give us water. Um, and, right, so once we were taking essential bookings, they didn't know what to do with us because they couldn't put us in cells without booking us. So they put us in... There's places where people who are imprisoned can call the outside and or not call the outside have a conversation with someone with phone so it's it's a probably about three feet wide and there's a it's like two levels so it's like chairs pulled up to like a desk that runs along the whole thing like you see in the movies um the glass with the table so they put about 30 of us in there handcuffed daisy chained so we were all we had to like contort to figure out how to fit in this place so there were people that were on the floor with like their leg up so that that person could be connected to the person that's on like the top of any it was really horrible and uncomfortable um and by like the fifth day you know we had been cheering we had been singing we had been like holding, like, you know, impromptu therapy sessions, basically, where we were processing what was going on, and at that point, I feel like everyone was just so done and so broken that, like, we couldn't even get it together, and the cops were just, like, making fun of us, and they were just, like, you know, oh, you can't sing anymore, like, oh, you don't want to talk about your feelings, and it was, like, really hard And I definitely felt like I took a leadership role in that uh, situation because I was with this woman who was older. Um, I was with someone who was diabetic and I was with my friend Sarah who was being denied her meds. So I definitely felt like there were people that were like being really uncared for. So I was having a lot of uh, interaction with the police because I would just, I mean, they were around all the time. They were, and it was almost like immature things that wouldn't be so painful had you not been witnessing people in like severe pain, you know, like, oh, like nice hair. Like, okay, that's like not the worst, but like saying that to my friend Sarah while she's, like, crying hysterically and rocking back and forth on the floor is, like, a totally different situation. Um, and it was a lot of that. It was, like, a lot of antagonization. Um, at one point, they, like, ate sandwiches and pizza in front of us and wouldn't let us have any. And then they were like, I bet you're all vegetarians, huh? And they started throwing ham on the floor, just, like, pieces of ham. Uh <laughs> Which some people ate because we were starving. <laughs> I mean, we weren't starving. We were very hungry. Uh, but yeah, that was like in the in the detention center 
Uh, so it was covered in like dust and asbestos. Um, just very antagonizing. The cops were, cops just like wanted to make fun of us a lot. (laughs) And then they were like, you know, they also were overloaded with paperwork and working overtime and like were totally stressed out themselves you know, and, like, (laughs) that was a part that I totally saw and, like, a lot of times tried to, like, have a conversation with them about, like, oh, doesn't this suck? Have you been here 20 hours? Like, would you like to go home? Yeah, like, this is bullshit, right? Um, And so there was a lot of, like, half conversations like that, which really, they didn't really engage in with me, but... I mean, unfortunately, it's very hard to talk to the police, (laughs) so I didn't really get that many good conversations, Um, (laughs) but I tried. (laughs) We had had, when we'd been able to make a phone call about four hours before we were released, so we were all like, okay, we're going to leave soon. Sorry, I've been missing for five days. Like, it was, everyone was so, I mean, tired covered in bumps like I you know I was all bloody everyone was having like major I mean everyone had an issue that they were dealing with besides just not sleeping and being hungry and not being able to alert their family or friends where they were um which was also pretty you know psychologically damaging to not to know that everyone is worried about you and not be able to tell anyone where you were. Um, and we had, you know, been cut off from any information. So we really had no idea what was, what was happening. Occasionally we'd see people that came in later cause they had been doing these sweeps like up until Bush spoke and then they stopped. Um, so Sometimes new people were, like, paraded by us that we knew, and we'd be like, what is happening? And they'd be like, 300 people got arrested on this street, and that would be, like, the passing conversation. Yeah, they got most of us. (laughs) I had, oh, we were freezing, right? It was so cold in the, it was super air-conditioned in that place, and... I was in a bra, like, and a tutu. Like, we were not dressed for this occasion. Right, so we were also freezing. And people had been, for, like, people that were really cold and shivering. And, like, I remember, like, that woman, she was, like, very cold and shivering and, like, crying. And people were, like, taking off different parts of their clothes to, like, give to her to wrap around. But, like, people wouldn't sit on the floor because it was too dirty. Like, it was... It was in. It was insane. It was. We were no blankets. No. It was intense. Um, I didn't shit the whole time I was in there. I remember that. Um, but yeah, we had to basically pee in a corner the whole time we were in the detention center. But people were like, like animals, just like going on the floor, um, and no toilet paper. And, yeah, it was, it was gross and horrible. 
I mean, what I, yeah, I didn't sleep, I didn't eat, I was handcuffed for most of it. Um, I remember coming home, like, coming, going back to my parents' house, and my wrists were, like, totally black and blue and, like, bloody, and I was covered in dirt, and when I went to take a shower, it was, like, blood and dirt, like, going down the drain. Um, my feet, oh, I was barefoot because my shoe had broken at some point. I was wearing, like, these beat-up Converse. And my, yeah, so I, I was barefoot on one of my feet until they were, like, covered in cuts and, like, really bruised. Um, everything was ripped. <laughs> I didn't sleep over that five-day period. I remember that really clearly, and I remember hallucinating when I got back home and just, like, seeing, like, auras and shapes and things moving because I was so overtired. Um, my, I was definitely, like... I kind of stopped participating in activism. I, like, wouldn't go to non-permanent marches. I, like, wouldn't go to places with police presence. Um, I was, like, really traumatized when I saw police. Uh, I would cross the street. It was also hard because, like, there was a... Basically a media blackout where... No one was talking about it, so people were, like, claiming that we were, like... I mean, Kelly said that jail is not a vacation and that nothing that bad happened. So there was also this, like, uh, sort of aura of doubt around us that, like, none of this really happened or that we were overreacting or that this wasn't, like, really as bad as it was, which is hard, too, because... You know, I, I know that this is, like, a lot of people's lives is like are like this. This is, like, real, you know, I, I, the fact that I experienced it as, like, a white 16-year-old girl from Manhattan is, like, pretty unusual um, in the scheme of things. This is, like, something that happens, but usually not to me, and, uh, and, so it's like you're I mean it's complicated cuz like I definitely felt angry about it but also knowing that I'm like privileged to not have to deal with that all the time without totally invalidating the experience that I did have which was really horrible and like you know at that age I think that it sort of informed how I, I mean, how I organized for a while. Um, my arrest and detention was successful on their part. It was super successful. They did exactly what they wanted to, which is they got us off the streets for the, uh, for Bush speaking and for the RNC. And they, I mean, now they hardly have to pay anything, and it was worth it, honestly. Like, what, you know? No cops got fired. Nothing too terrible happened to the city. This lawsuit has been going on for almost 11 years. The lawyer that started this case with me in the time has gotten married, had a baby, and stopped being a pro bono lawyer. So, you know, they won. 
they're still winning. I mean, that's, that's the point (laughs) that I probably won't have another experience like this, but everyone else will. Like, the, I mean, I can't look at the justice system as anything but intensely flawed and, like, succeeding in what it's trying to accomplish, which is, like, oppressing people. Yeah, and in in these 11 years, the police have been given way more power that this lawsuit probably wouldn't even stand if it was today. Uh, I mean, stopping people for no reason, we're claiming that it was unconstitutional. At this point, it's not. (laughs) New York has gotten so much worse in terms of the police's power. Uh, It's, I mean... At that point, we were saying that it was a police state, but now we are in a police state, and it wasn't. (laughs) I see, I live in fucking Crown Heights. The cops are in the train station every day, stopping people who are going home, mothers, children, uh, for absolutely no reason, and then threatening to arrest them if they say please don't stop me I have to go home so I mean that's that's where we're at right now <laughs> right part three and maybe part four I don't know yet will be released soon In them, Emily will speak about the subsequent lawsuit against the city of New York, and together we'll explore the meaning and effects of her arrest and detention, and it's placed in the larger post-9-11 story. And so this is the ninth anniversary of the Republican National Convention, and our next episode will deal with a rather more prominent anniversary. If you're interested in collaborating with us or you want to check out that upcoming episode or past ones, you can find us at Never Forget Radio on iTunes, Facebook, Gmail, Tumblr, or Bandcamp, or Never Forget Pod on Twitter. This is the sixth episode of Never Forget Radio, and already we've collaborated with many people, and I want to quickly thank Miles Donovan of the Daily Robot, who designed our logo and is currently working on a top-secret collaboration codenamed The Manhattan Project. Harry Waxberg, Jeremy Goodman, Rebecca Catherine Hirsch, and Emily, of course, who provided their voice talents to the show. Barbarism, who's filmed an upcoming video. Jeremy and Rebecca, who've made trailers. John Hollyan, who's working on one. I want to thank Laura Bloom, Mira Treatment, Janine Campbell, and Corey Bakelli, who've invited Never Radio to perform at their events. Old Table, No One in the Somebody's, Cave Cricket, Bruce Springsteen, who've offered their music free of charge. Bobby Hollihan, Lynette Johnson, Sarah Belknap, all the other friends who've offered me advice and opinions on 9-11. And lastly, to Mordecai Martin, who's been so helpful. Here's a teaser quote from Emily from part three of this interview. Like, the city lawyers were just, like, vicious and, like, cruel and took my experience and sort of, I felt, like, made fun of it and sort of humiliated me in this weird way and it was like very gendered and it was very like ageist and I like really I it was really uncomfortable the whole deposition was like probably more traumatizing than the whole time in jail thank you never forget <laughs> <laughs>